So welcome back again to the second part of Sacred Space. My name is John Kelly. Now I'd like to play uh, to play back some two recordings that I made of talks given at the recent novena for Our Lady of Perpetual Help in, in Limerick. The first uh, talk was given by Father Peter Hill. He's a redemptist from the Caribbean, and he, he spoke to us on the theme, A Just Household. This will be followed by the singing of the Magnificat. Of course, this is sung at each session of the novena, as a responsorial psalm. And our second talk today is from Anne Walsh. Anne Walsh is a lay redemptist from Canada, and Anne spoke to us on the theme, A Domestic Church. The piece of music to finish off this second part of the programme this morning was sung at the last three sessions of the Novena, and this is entitled, There is an Isle, a Bunny Isle, an old Limerick song. So please sit back and relax and enjoy this, especially those people who weren't able to attend the Novena this year. We hope you enjoy listening. So let's hear this. Church, we live in a world that is no surprise. Sometimes we turn on the television and we see millionaires and billionaires leaving hundreds of thousands of dollars to take care of their pets. Now, in case anyone of you here on the webcam have any ideas of doing this, I make a very good pet, so please remember me. We live in, in a world that's very much broken, it's very much unjust. We, we, we hear that about 70% of the world's population only control and have 3% of the world's wealth. We, we live in a world where we have so many homeless people. Last I saw the census in Ireland, there are over 10,000 homeless people here. We live in a world where there are people with no homes and others with, with, with multiple homes all over the world. We, we, we live in a world where many people have nothing or very little to eat. And then there's so much food being wasted all, all, all over the place. And we live in a broken world. And I share this with you, not for you to feel guilty, don't want to add any more Catholic guilt, but just as a recognition and a reality that we live in a world that's oftentimes unjust, oftentimes unfair, a world that is broken. As we come to our eighth day of the Novena, our theme is the just household. And on some levels we can say our call is like that young boy who realized when we put the man together, the whole world will fall into place. And how do we do this? If you listen carefully to the first reading from the prophet Isaiah, he paints a picture for us. We hear things like to lose the bonds of wickedness, to break every yoke, to share your bread, to clothe the naked, to take away speaking wickedness. And when we listen to the requirements from Isaiah, I think it comes into three major categories. If, if we want to work for justice in this world, I think we need to concentrate on freedom, and I think we need to concentrate on people's physical needs, and I think we need to also respect the dignity of everyone. Now, what does that look like? Freedom. Isaiah tells us, take away the yoke, let the oppressed go free, and lose the bonds of wickedness. When we look at our world, there are a lot of people in bondage. There are a lot of people who are oppressed. And our job as Christians is to help free them. Now, one of the ways I think as people we're in bondage and we're oppressed, which we don't oftentimes think of, I believe is the use of technology, the use of social media, the use of gadgets. Now, I'm going to be the first one to admit, I have my iPad right now. 
Alright, so I'm the first to admit technology is great, the internet is great, our gadgets are great. But we have to be careful that we don't let these things become more important than people. It is not uncommon to walk down the street and you see a group of teenagers and they're walking in a group and nobody's talking to each other, headphones in their ear and they're staring down at their screens. It's not uncommon that so many homes Families don't even share a meal together anymore because everyone is in a separate room doing their own thing in front of a television. It's, it's not uncommon that there's so many people who, who go on the internet and they have some very wicked, some very vile, malicious things to say about others hiding behind a screen. It's not uncommon in our world we believe that so many young people, so many poor young people feel that, that, that they're worth is not good enough because they don't have the latest gadgets and the latest equipment. We live in a world where, where child pornography, where pornography is destroying so many families as so many people go on the internet to have their, their needs met. We live in, in a world where there's so many poor people working in terrible conditions and sweatshops around the world so that we can have all the latest equipment. Again, it's not to make us feel guilty. But for us to recognize that oftentimes if we're not careful, that we can become slaves to technology like this. And so often we're so in front of a screen and then this face-to-face, -face, this the beauty of the other gets lost because we're hiding. And it's especially important for us on the younger end of the age spectrum to be aware that we don't fall prey and become oppressed and become slaves. That as soon as we wake up in the morning, we're checking emails, we're checking messages. As soon as we, before we go to bed, is the last thing we do. Throughout the day, we're constantly in touch. But the people right next to us, their stories, their lives, their hurts, their pains, their joys, it's removed from us because we don't even spend time with the other. So we have to be careful of that. The second, I think, is physical needs. Isaiah tells us, share your bread, pour yourself out for the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, clothe the naked. And one of the important things from this, Isaiah reminds us with this four-letter word, your. He's reminding us that to work for justice, to be with people, we have to get in the mess of people's lives. And it also will cost us something. Your bread, your clothes, your home. To remind us that all of us are called to give. In the seminary this past Lent, we did a, a simple gesture. On the Fridays in Lent, we decided as, as a community that we're not going to have uh, any fancy dinner. We're just going to have soup. And so the money that we save, we're going to give it to a charity. And so there's 17 growing men in that house. So you can imagine the amount of money we spend on food. And so we deprived ourselves. We gave of our food, so to speak, so that others could benefit. It's not oftentimes difficult things to do, but we just always have to keep in, in the forefront of our minds that God has blessed us, and even the little we have, we need to share with others so that they may have a life also. And the last thing is respect and dignity. Isaiah says things like, Take away speaking wickedness. Don't hide yourself from your own flesh. And what does that look like? On very simple levels, we need to pay attention to our language, the words that we use. Oftentimes you hear it, all black people are lazy, 
All migrants and refugees, they're just thieves. All Irish people do is just drink and get drunk. All country folk are stupid. All conservatives are backward. All liberals are enlightened. And, and, and we, we label people, we categorize things, and what we don't realize is that when we do that, we're not respecting the fact that each and every one of us was made in the image and likeness of God. And when we start with the name calling, then we start to dehumanize people, and now it makes an excuse, it makes us comfortable in how we treat, because guess what? They're not humans. And so we need to always pay attention to our language because if we keep repeating things, then we start to believe it. And when we start to believe it, then it now justifies our behavior. So the prophet Isaiah is reminding us of our call to see Christ in everyone and to reach out to our brothers and sisters in need. And so I just want to end with this story. It's called the story of the fourth wise man. The story says that the fourth wise man left with the other three to follow the star in search of baby Jesus. Along the way, he was constantly distracted by people who needed his help. He would send the other three ahead and catch up with them within a day or two. But when the three wise men reached Bethlehem, the fourth wise man was nowhere to be found. Many years later, the fourth wise man arrived arrived in Jerusalem three days after Jesus' crucifixion. He mourned and he wept, grieving the fact that the king he had come to worship had already grown up and had been put to death. He had spent 30 years helping others in need and had missed the one person he wanted to see the most. Then something extraordinary happened. Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to the fourth wise man. And the wise man started to apologize for not having arrived in time to worship Jesus. But Jesus replied, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. The fourth wise man who thought he had missed Jesus, Jesus was right there every single time he reached out to someone in need. My brothers and sisters, the little boy, the fourth wise man, and the prophet Isaiah, they all remind us that in this broken, unjust, and wounded world, our call and our task is to bring forth the light of Christ by working for the needs of others. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. He looks on his servant in her lowliness. Henceforth all ages will call me blessed. The Almighty that smiles for me, holy is his name. His mercy is from age to age on those who fear him. He puts forth his arm in strength and scatters the proud hearted. 
He casts the mighty from their thrones and raises the lowly. He fills the starving with good things, sends the rich away empty. He protects his royal servant, remembering his mercy, the mercy promised to our ancestors. To Abraham and his descendants forever. Good morning. My name is Anne Waltz, and you can tell from the accent that I'm not from Limerick. I come from St. John's in Newfoundland, so it might sound vaguely Irish, but only vaguely, and my ancestors would have come from around Waterford, somewhere around 1798. So it's a long time ago, but it's nice to be home. Father Jerry talked about the family as the domestic church, and I don't know about you, but for most of my life when I heard that, I felt woefully inadequate, as if my family was no church. And I focused on what we weren't rather than what we were, or rather than we focused on what we aren't rather than what we are. And somehow, in doing that, I think we can miss so easily the grace of God and the good work that God is doing and has done in our families, no matter what their shape or size or makeup. So. I thought for a long time that my family was nothing like a church. But now that I'm a bit older and hopefully a little bit wiser, I've had time to think about my family and others fa other families, and my thinking has changed a bit. Now I think the family is called the domestic church because God is at work among us and because we have so much that's good in the midst of all of our trials and struggles. Let me tell you what I mean. I'm going to share four lessons that I've learned from my family, my domestic church, and I'll invite you to think about, do they sound like your family and the wider church too? Because family is where we learn to be a community. I'm the oldest of eight, and I grew up in St. John's in a three-bedroom house that eventually grew to a five-bedroom house. I honestly don't know where we all fit. There were eight children, my mother and father, and my grandmother, most times. And there were other times when there were elderly or sick relatives who came to stay with us, sometimes for a day or two sometimes for a week or two, and sometimes for longer. There were elderly relatives, and one aunt in particular, who, whenever my mother was pregnant, moved in and took over. So there might have been 11 in the family, but there were always more. They took care of us, and we took care of them. And my memory of growing up is that there were lots of people, lots of food, lots of laughter, lots of music, and lots of squabbling. It was a loud house, and people used to say if you wanted an argument, you went there. 
I honestly don't remember where we all fit, but we did make room for one another in the house and in our hearts and in our minds and in our attitudes. And I think that's the first lesson that I learned in my family, that we make room for one another. And making room isn't just about the space in the house. It's about the space in your heart and the space in your mind and the space in your attitude. It's where we learn to be open to one another, to make room for one another. When all said and done, we're family. When we were kids, we used to ask my mother, each of us secretly, we thought, who's your favorite? Which one do you love more? Now, I know I'm her favorite. But her answer was never, Anne, you're my favorite. Her answer was something like this. I don't have a favorite. I love most the one who needs me most. I thought that was a very wise answer. Not then, but now. That's my second lesson. Families keep a special eye out for one another, and especially for those who are most in need, those who are most on the edge, those who need more care or more time or more attention or more love or more nurturing or more resources. Families love most the one who needs us most. And that varies from day to day and week to week and year to year. We all get our turn. Next, and flowing from that, my family taught me what love looks like, not what it feels like. I hardly ever heard a parent or a sister or brother say, I love you. I would have thought they'd gone bonkers if they did that. <laughs> they taught me, though, that words without deeds are empty and that it's next to useless to say the words, I love you, if that's not backed up by good, solid action. How do you know I love you? Well, you know when I put you first and me second. It happens when you are a sick child and I stay up all night with you. When you're a tired mother, come home from a night shift and I make you breakfast. It's when it's exam time and I take away your smartphone so that you'll study. Ah, hit a, hit a little nerve there. It happens when a dad chooses to go to his daughter's school concert rather than to a match. That's what love looks like. That's how you know I love you and how you know you love me. That's my third lesson. Families teach us that Love is a decision, and actions speak louder than words. Life in my family also taught me that things don't always turn out as you'd planned, and that's not a bad thing. Failure and heartbreak are inevitable. They're part of being human and part of being in relationships. My family is not perfect and was never perfect. Life isn't perfect. In my family, we faced physical illnesses. We also faced mental illness in a significant way. We faced sorrow. We dealt with divorce and separation. 
we learned that some people go away and don't come home, and there's always an empty place in your heart for them. We also learned and dealt with the finality of death and how important it is to say and do the words and things of love while you have the chance. It's mostly through the hard times that we learned that change is inevitable and that we'll make it through with the help of God and one another. That's my fourth and my final lesson. Families teach us that things don't turn out as we plan sometimes and that that's not a bad thing. Sometimes God has something better in mind. Something is just, sometimes it's just something else, and that's not a bad thing. I'm not in charge. God is. So I believe that every family, no matter what its shape or size, no matter whether it has one parent or two or no parents, some of us now are older and we haven't any parents alive. But we're still family. We still have relationships with our brothers and sisters. And sometimes we forget those families. No matter what the shape, the size, or the makeup, families teach us and hold us and gather us and send us out into the world and give us a place to come back. It doesn't matter that your family or mine is not perfect. No family is. But that doesn't mean that your family or mine isn't holy, a domestic church. And so four little lessons from my family to yours this morning. First, make room for one another. Give each other space. Remember that actions speak louder than words. Love most those who need it most. And when things don't turn out as we planned, that's not a bad thing. Now we're going to sing um, an old Limerick song as our recessional this evening, and I hope that you will all join with us. There is an isle, a bunny isle. There is an
Precious. 